This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Under the Yellow Tape podcast is brought to you in part this week by Highlands Forensic Investigations and Consulting. Let us be your guide from crime scene to courtroom. Also brought to you by CRG Plans. CRG, Critical Response Group, making our world safer each day. If you're a parent with school-age children from kindergarten to university, take a look at CRG Plans and see how they're making the world safer for you, your family, your children, in your community. That's crgplans.com. Now let's get to it. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. This episode, we're going to pick up where we left off in the last episode. We're discussing the murder of Ryan Poston, a young man whose life was taken in October of 2012. He was shot and killed by his girlfriend, Shayna Hubers. In the first episode, we talked a lot about the scene in general, crime scenes, not just specifically to that case, but crime scenes in general and things that need to be done and accomplished at a crime scene in order to bring a case to trial. I want to pick up with this case, talking about this specific scene and some of the things about the scene that became very important in putting this uh, set of events and, and facts together to present to a jury. The Highland Heights Police Department in this particular case, you know, they documented the scene. They collected a lot of evidence there. Uh, they went through it systematically. And when you do it right, you're able to uh, put, start to put the pieces together. And there's many facets to a homicide investigation. There, there are interviews. There are statements. There are excited utterances, as we call. There's 911 calls and tapes of, of what was said on, on the phone. And one of the things we established in the first episode was that uh, Shane Hubers was contradicting herself in, in some of the statements she gave. And she was, she was being deceptive. And um, when we when we look at what she said, it was it was quite obvious that she was all over the place, which, which which should should make you focus even more on the on the physical evidence side of the case, and that's what they did here. So let's talk about the scene. We explained earlier there was a dining room table in a nook in a condo, kind of a small area. She gave contradicting statements about. He carried her outside. She went back in to get her things. She grabbed a hold of a gun. Another statement, he grabbed a hold of a gun. She wrestled it away from him. Things of that. Later on, it came out that she said he was on the opposite side of the dining room table with his back to the wall, either seated or getting up. She said he began to get up. And she gave the statement that he grabbed the gun and that she fought it away from him. She wrestled it away from him. She maintained, she took control of the firearm and fired at him. What, when you get a statement like that, um, you have to marry it up to or compare it to what the physical evidence actually says. So a lot of times when we look at one of these cases, I don't want to know the statements right away. I want to just look at what the physical evidence says. I want to remain as objective as I can, and I want to be 
tainted, if you will, by, by a statement of somebody, especially contradictory statements that are all over the place. You want to stay away from the banter, from the investigators, just the suggestions that other people have. And most of all, you, every law enforcement agency has this. We call it the theory guy or the theory girl. It doesn't matter if it's a guy or a girl. There's always some detective that has the theories. And they're the ones that every case, they're standing there with a cup of coffee in their hand. And they're saying, hey, I got a minute. And then they bring you over and they want to walk you through this thought process that they have. Sometimes they're actually pretty good. Sometimes they're so bizarre, you just shake your head and go, I can't believe you just said that. But you want to avoid those people. You just want to follow that physical evidence. What is it? What is it? Let's gather it. Let's collect it. And then let's break it down and see what it means. In this particular case, let's start with the room. I mentioned in the first episode that the dining room table had a substantial amount of clutter on it. There was a lot of things on the table with glasses, with liquid in it, you know, beverage or something. There were some boxes. There was some gun cleaning equipment. He had obviously cleaned his, his firearm. Uh, there were some other things. There was pill bottles, I believe. Um, it was cluttered. The entire surface of the table was cluttered. One of the things she brought up was, later on, was that there was a struggle for the gun across the table. She was on one side. He was on the other. You have to ask the question, is that even possible? What would our expectations be of all those items on the table if there was a struggle? Now, you might say, well, well, I don't know. It could be, could be things could have been knocked around or not. We're talking about a struggle for a gun. This is what she's saying. We're talking about a struggle for a firearm. And a struggle for a firearm usually doesn't end well for one side or the other. So we're not talking about we're struggling for a chocolate chip cookie here. We're talking about struggling for a firearm. That, that tends to be a little bit more violent. And if that were to happen, what you, would your expectations be of this, this, these items on the table? Mine would be that some of it would have been knocked over, knocked to the floor. There might have been, the table might have been cleared and, and things could have been everywhere, scattered. In this particular case, there was nothing out of place. It was cluttered. And it looked like it remained right where everything was, with one exception. The flat area of the table surface directly in the chair that she had explained Ryan Poston had been sitting in, and which we were able to determine he was, the flat table surface had a substantial amount of pooled blood on the table surface. And then there was some wipe patterns that traveled through this blood. And when we have that, occur, it can sometimes give us direction of movement. In this particular case, it did. Within that pool of blood were a pair of eyeglasses. The lenses, the exterior, the front face of the lens was down in the blood. And the pieces that go over your ear on a pair of glasses, sunglasses, or eyeglasses, it's called the temple tips. Temple tips are pointing straight up in the air. Not an, anybody that wears glasses knows you don't take your glasses off and put them down lens to the surface of the table and they'd be scratched. So it's an unusual way for the, for the glasses to be situated. It comes into play a little bit later because of a previous statement that she said later when he was on the floor, when she went over, he still had his glasses on. <clears throat> that would not be the case. And those little things sometimes add up. Little things add up to big things. And um, one of the injuries, and I'm going to go from injuries to blood and back to injuries to blood. I'm going to walk through them a little bit and why they became important. One of the injuries that Ryan Poston sustained was to the edge of his right forehead. A bullet struck him in the right side of the forehead traveled under the skin, uh, partially exited over his right ear. Some of it stayed in, some of it exited. Now, people say, well, it was a, more like a grazing shot or a tangential shot. How could it have incapacitated him? Incapacitated him. One of the things that was brought up by the defense early on was that Mr. Poston was ambulatory meaning he, he was moving around. He could move around. Okay, so let me just give you a little bit of 
background on the bullet strike to that. First of all, I think it's very important we talk about the gun and, and uh, what it means to that gunshot to his head. So the pistol in question here that was used in this incident was a Sig Sauer Model P238. Okay, it's a 380 caliber semi-automatic or what they call autoloader. A semi-automatic pistol. Now, there's been a lot of uh, talk about guns lately. Guns, gun violence, gun violence, gun violence, gun violence. And there's been a lot of probably miscommunication with regards to firearms. And the, the miscommunication or the falsities or falsehoods, I guess we should say, about most anything that we hear about today is square, falls squarely on the shoulders of our media. They suck. And I've said that in podcasts in the past. Um, the, day, the day it became obvious, they had a side. And their side wasn't objectivity. Their, their profession went in the shitter pretty quick. But they talk about guns like crazy now, right? Because it's become a political issue. Why is it important that we explain this gun to a jury when we get into a courtroom? Well, because it was a shooting. And they need to know what this gun is capable of. They need to know how it operates, and they need to know what it really means. So um, when you hear somebody say, well, it's an automatic pistol, that's not correct. In the world of firearms, there is automatic and there is semi-automatic as far as those types of pistols. And there's revolvers, and they're all different, right? Um, a semi-automatic and an automatic differ in that a semi-automatic, a cartridge will be discharged or a bullet will be fired with each depression of the trigger. Where, as in an automatic, one depression of the trigger and holding it down would cause multiple rounds to fire. That's an automatic fire. Um, you'll hear the term select fire or automatic. Um, and those, that's, that's the big difference. Now, why is that different? Why is that different? Well, if you depress the trigger on an automatic weapon and five rounds fire off, very rapid rate, right? Like a machine gun type thing. Those five rounds can, the bullet, uh, the gun may rise, bullets can go different directions, whatever it may be. But it's one depression of the trigger. The significance in a semi-automatic firearm is every time you depress that trigger, a bullet is being fired. In a shooting, there's always three things we look at. A person's perception of an incident, and this is the mental component of a shooting, their perception of an incident. They know they're going to do it. Whatever, whatever reason why, I'm angry, I hate you, I'm scared, I'm defending myself, whatever it might be, they're making that perception. It's, it's in their head. The next one is the cognitive part where they actually um, decide to pull the trigger. So there's, I'm going to pull the trigger, then they're, as they're, they're actually, or there's an incident that causes them to think about pulling the trigger, I should say, in the first part. Then there's the actual, I'm going to pull the trigger. That's the cognitive decision. And then there's the actual execution of pulling the trigger. And you might say, yeah, that sounds like a lot of noise. What does that mean? Well, the human being has to see a reason to do this. And the reason could be they want to. I want to shoot you in the face. I'm going to do that. I'm going to shoot you to defend my family. I'm going to shoot you to defend my partner. I'm going to shoot you whatever reason. I'm going to, I see this threat. So the first part is the perception of the threat or the opportunity to do this. The second part is the actual decision. I'm going to do it. The third part is component where you actually execute it and do pull the trigger. Because at any time, you can stop yourself. Well, in a case like this where we have six rounds fired, that is six individual bullets being fired by six individual pulls of the trigger. And for each one of those, we can attribute those three steps I just gave you for each one. That becomes significant. That becomes significant. She fired six rounds. She hit him six times. That also becomes very significant, which we'll talk to talk about in a little bit. So in um, a firearm, now this is a semi-automatic pistol. 
Sig Sauer. It's a 380 caliber. What happens, and some of you may or may not know this, and a lot of you do, and if you do, that's bear with me for a minute. The trigger is pulled. That sets the firing pin in motion. The firing pin then strikes the primer, ignites the primer powder, which in turn ignites the powder in the cartridge. That explosion occurs within the cartridge within the gun. When that happens, that pressure from that explosion has to go somewhere. So it is being applied in a lot of different directions, but it's going to take the path of least resistance. And what that is, is the back end of the projectile, the bullet itself that's seated in the cartridge. And it pushes that down the barrel of the gun. Now, I made it sound very graceful and slow. It's not. It's a violent, very fast thing. So you have an explosion that pushes this piece of lead spiraling down the barrel because there are lands and grooves in the barrel for accuracy, and the bullet is sent out into the environment at a very high rate of speed. What a lot of people fail to stop and think about, and once you explain it to them, it becomes very obvious. When that explosion occurs, what happens in a semi-automatic pistol is one of two things. Well, one thing happens. The slide at the very top recoils backwards and cycles, we call it, cycles back. As it cycles back, it grabs the empty, empty cartridge that was just fired, and it ejects it out what we call an ejection port, and it sends it into the air, usually to the right of the weapon. As that slide now cycles forward, it is designed to grab the next bullet in the magazine, which is located within the pistol grip, and take that bullet and force it forward into the chamber to fire again. Nothing else has to be done except another pull of the trigger to fire the next round. And this happens very, very fast. So as fast as you can pull that trigger, you're not as fast as this gun cycle. So it happens very quickly. So six shots can go up very quick or they can go up very slow. But you don't have to do much except pull the trigger. Now in that explosion, in addition to the cycling of the weapon and, and reloading itself, In addition to the projectile or the bullet leaving the firearm, there is also the gunpowder which has been ignited. So what else, the other, the other uh, material that exits the firearm through the barrel, through the ejection port and in different directions, is some of that gunshot residue, the powder. So some of it is burnt, some of it is partially burnt, and some of it is still yet unburnt as it projects itself along with the bullet out of the muzzle of the firearm, out of the barrel, downrange. The difference between the bullet and the gun, uh, gunshot residue is that the bullet's heavy. It has a lot of density, and it's going to travel a long way, very fast. The gunpowder, the gunshot residue, does not have that density. So it's going to come out just as fast, but it's not going to go that far. And that becomes a very critical piece of information for the crime scene investigator and for the shooting and people analyzing the shooting. It will only go so far. So the bullet may strike a surface, maybe a person, maybe go in, maybe go through, maybe it misses them altogether. But the bullet's small. What happens with the gunshot residue is it spreads as it goes out in a conical type of formation, kind of like birdshot or buckshot out of a shotgun. As it gets further away from the gun, it spreads wider and wider. That will hit different surfaces, but it won't travel so far. Now, the unique thing about this is each gun is slightly different. And the amount of powder that comes out of that gun is different. But it goes down range. So it's not going to go far, but each one's only going to throw at a certain distance. And what we can do is we can test that later. We can test that firearm with that ammunition and try to recreate that dispersion of powder. When that powder hits a surface, it can stay there. Now, you might have vaporous powder. You might have larger pieces of the powder that hit a surface and leave an impact mark. And if they do, it becomes very important. 
when they hit the surface, sometimes they can impact. We call it a punctate impact. But what it does for us as the investigators is it allows us to give a muzzle to target distance. One of the most important questions and one of the things most often overlooked in shootings is the distance between your shooter and the target, whatever the target that is struck by the bullet. If you're investigating a shooting, one of the first questions is, don't you want to know how far apart they were? Because it might lend a lot of credibility to a statement or it might completely blow somebody's statement up. Depends on how you look at it. So when we do that and we look at these, these distances, it helps us put things together. So the reason I explained this to you and I took the time to kind of break it down in a simplistic term in terms, and some of you might be shaking your head saying, who doesn't know this? Well, a lot of people don't. You'd be surprised how many people in law enforcement don't. It's, it's to, to let you know that other things other than a bullet come out of the gun and we look at them and they become very important. In this particular case, Ryan Poston, on some of his injuries, had what we call stippling, um, which was identified by the medical examiner. And stippling is, is, is a byproduct of that gunshot residue coming from the gun. Okay? Um, and sometimes we look at the skin, sometimes we look at the clothing, um, and we want to see what what it is and, and, and what it looks like. So on the skin, um, stippling can consist of multiple punctate abrasions. It's an impact. It's an impact from the gunpowder in flight. And um, when it impacts the skin, it leaves a mark. It leaves an impression, almost a red abrasion, like, a, like an impact abrasion mark. And sometimes um, that stippling and the shape and size and spread of that stippling can help us determine how far away that muzzle was from that skin that took the impact. And that is very important. That can be very important for us. The interesting thing, too, about stippling is a bullet may pass through several different things before it comes to rest. It may pass through a wall before it hits a person or a window before it hits a person. The stippling will not. So it's important to note that if we do have stippling on the skin of a victim that has been shot, that there really was nothing in between them and the muzzle. And in this particular case, that became important because there were several areas on his body that had stippling present. And when we, uh, when we, when we break that down, it says a lot about where he was, the position that he was, and the position that she was as the shooter. So let's go back to his position. When you show up at a scene, and the Highland Heights Police Department in this case showed up at the scene, they found Ryan Poston on the floor behind the dining room table to the right of the chair that was at the table. Substantial amount of blood on the table, as I said. There was also blood on the surface of the chair. Now, obviously, there was a lot of blood on him. So you can't just look at it like there's a lot of blood. You have to actually say, well, you know, where was it? And what does it look like? So there's a thing called bloodstain pattern analysis. And it is like the, you're basically looking at the, you're giving a geometric interpretation of bloodstain evidence. Where is it? What does it look like? How did it get here? And there's certain mechanisms that, that we can go to to say this is what this blood, specific blood pattern means. And if we can do that, sometimes we can say what it means to an event. Well, he had a substantial amount of blood on him and around him. There was blood on the chair. There was blood on the wall behind him, which became a very important piece of evidence. The impact that he took to the right side of his forehead. When we look at somebody and we say, well, he was shot in the forehead. It was only a 380. I wouldn't use the term only a 380 because I'm going to tell you something right now. A bullet traveling out of a 380 handgun, and I'm going to give you an average here, but it's, it gives you an idea of the impact on the head and what it actually means. It's moving at about 900 and, I don't know, 80 feet per second. And in the first episode, I talked about being a professional investigator and a professional witness. When you go into court and you start talking about velocity of bullet travel, and you might have to do that as an expert. And you tell a jury that the bullet moved at 980 feet per second. Your average juror, your average person 
says, uh, wow, that sounds fast. They don't really have anything to relate it to in their, in their life. Like, what do they measure in feet per second to give them some sort of benchmark to say, how fast is that? Convert that. So the bullet struck Ryan Poston's head at 670 miles an hour. If you don't think that's incapacitating and you think that he's ambulatory after that, your head, or the most of your head, is comprised of your skull underneath. There's not much soft tissue damage, uh, soft tissue areas on your head that's not going to hit something major. So when the bullet slams into your forehead, you have skin, you have a little tissue, and you have your skull right behind it. So it's a small piece of lead moving at about 600 plus miles an hour, slamming into your skull. So hard, in fact, that it breaks it and penetrates into it, partially exits the side. If you for a minute don't think that that is going to knock you out of your mental faculties, if not kill you, you're missing something. It is. It's a, it, is a, it is a devastating impact to your head. You may not die from it right away, but you might. But you're sure as hell not going to be ambulatory and continuing a conversation or an argument with somebody. A gunshot to the head is going to knock you silly. What we learned is that Ryan Poston went face down onto the table. And he bled on the table. And the pooling of the blood on the table told us that he was there for a period of time. And when I say a period of time, we don't know exactly how long. But it was an instant because there was a substantial amount of bleeding onto the table surface. And that's not going to happen in an instant. One of the things, uh, one of the next uh, injuries that he sustained, there was a shot by his right armpit and towards the shoulder blade of his right side of his back. And when we talk about these gunshot wounds, we also not only want to talk about where they impacted the body, but what wound track did they take? So the one to the head hits him in the right side of the forehead and kind of travels under the skin on the right side of his head over his temple towards his right ear tells us it kind of came from straight ahead, where he was looking at the muzzle when it was discharged and struck him in the head. Now, the ones on his armpit and the ones on his right back, people say, well, he was shot in the back. Well, it might have struck the surface of his back, what is considered anatomically his back, but it didn't come from behind him because the wound track tells us the direction it traveled. So it struck him on those, both of those bullets struck him on the right side not far from each other, right back shoulder blade and right back kind of armpit. And they traveled laterally from right to left and downward within his body. So when we, we learn those wound tracks, we have to try to determine what position was he in when he received those gunshots and therefore where would the, where would the firearm be that fired them? So he's seated or partially seated at the table, and he takes the one across the table, almost straight across the table, into his forehead. We know at that point, he goes face down on the table, to the point where his glasses stayed there. Lenses down, temple tips up, in a pool of blood. He then takes multiple gunshots to his right side, in a, in a wound path that says right to left and downward. Well, where would the muzzle have to be if he's face down on the table and he received them? There's no indication he was up moving around. We know he's on the table. So try to picture him face down on the table. Where would the muzzle have to be? Ryan Poston didn't move. The shooter moved. The flight path of the bullets are come from a different place. They come from his right. And, and what anatomically would be above him. But if he's face down on the table, she's walking around the table. She's moving. She actually said at one point in one of her statements that she did move around the table. Now you could say to yourself, okay, I understand that. So she shoots him in the face, in the forehead. He goes face down on the table. And then she moves around the table. Stop right there. And I just want you to think about that. I want you to think about it from the mindset of the shooter. What is she doing? 
she's moving into a different position. He's no longer upright, sitting upright. So he's not presenting as much of a target surface to her. So what does she do? She moves to a position where she has a better viewpoint of him, or maybe a better angle of fire. And she fires twice. The interesting thing is there was not stippling on the first shot from across the table. So the powder never reached his head in a, in, in a, in a manner in which it would left those punctate injuries surrounding the bullet hole. But as she moves around the table and his next two shots, there is stippling. One is on the skin. The other one is through the shirt, actually. He was wearing kind of a tank top, very thin cotton T-shirt. What else does that tell us now? Well, she moved closer than where she was on the first shot. This becomes very important because what is she doing? She's closing the distance on her target. So she's moving in closer, and that becomes significant, especially when you're talking about somebody who is using the claim of self-defense. And from that point, each one of these bullet holes that he's now sustained in his body, there's three at this point. There's one in the forehead, which he bled on the table, and there's two in his, in his right side back, armpit towards the back of the arm and the back shoulder blade area, moving laterally. Another important part to understand about those bullet holes is they are now blood sources. They now have blood exposed. They're going to bleed. Now, where they bleed and how they bleed become important. We said earlier that Ryan Poston ends up on the floor to the right of the chair. Well, in between the chair and the floor, there's a large, what we call swipe pattern on the wall, and it's shaped in an arc. It's arched from the wall, curving downward towards his final resting position. And you say, where did that blood come from? Well, where could it have come from? Could it come from his forehead? Or it came from one of two or both of those gunshots to his backside? Which would be more logical? So as he's receiving more gunfire, he now falls from the chair. Whether he tried to move or not, I don't know, but he fell from the chair. He's no longer in the chair. On the chair now that is left behind, we have blood on the surface of the cushion that he sat on that had fallen down between his legs. We have blood on his pants, his lap. And we have this, this swipe pattern along the wall that is very in, uh, indicative of his movement after he's bleeding. And that's the important part. There is bloodshed already. The blood is kind of leaving us a trail the trail of body movement, and the manner in which it's, uh, it's deposited on the wall is very telling. So now he's on the floor. He still has three other gunshots. As I mentioned earlier, he was shot six times. When you looked at the body of Ryan Poston on the floor, there were several other things now that became evident. When Lieutenant Fornash went into that room, and found Ryan Poston on the floor. He was laying partially face down and partially kind of on his right side. What was exposed now was his left side and part of his back. But you could see part of his, the front of his body too. It was down low, but you could see it. His left side and his head were exposed and he's laying there on the ground. We know he lay there on the ground. There wasn't any other movement because there was already bloodshed. We would have an expectation of other bloodstain evidence that would give us indicators of his being ambulatory, like he said, or trying to move around, and it just wasn't there. So Ryan Poston, we are confident, went to the ground and never got up. What happened then? He then sustains three additional gunshots. There is one towards his left armpit now, opposite side of the body, and that moves laterally too. And we have one in his chest. The interesting thing about 
um, those, especially the one on the chest, is there is gunshot residue visible on the white shirt. Again, going back to what we said earlier, that means the muzzle is moving closer. Now he's also on the ground. He's not sitting up in a chair. What that tells us is that the shooter again advanced, moved closer, and got down low, actually moved the firearm down low and fired again. That bullet passed through the front of the chest, came out and entered the right arm, tried to exit the right arm. On the back of the right arm is, was something the uh, medical examiner identified as a short exit. Short exit is the bullet wants to come out, but the body is up against something firm. It turns out he was up against the baseboard molding on the bottom of the wall. But it went right through. <clears throat> it also tells us he's in that position on the floor. The armpit shot was the same. Went through. Same direction. So we're taking gunshots from different sides of his body. That means people are moving. In this case, they're both moving. The victim, Ryan Poston, is getting struck at the table. Goes face down, struck again while he's still at the table. Falls to the floor. Now he's getting struck from the opposite side of his body. The opposite side of his body is now exposed to the muzzle. In shooting, there's a very important thing you have to understand. The muzzle has to present itself to the target. And the target has to present itself to the muzzle. When a bullet is fired, it's a snapshot in time. The bullet flies and it hits a target. Barring a ricochet or any change of direction, that's what happens. And at one point, Ryan Poston's face was exposed to the muzzle. At another point, after we have movement by the shooter, Ryan Poston's right shoulder and armpit are exposed to the shooter. After he falls to the floor and his body position changes and the shooter moves again, his left side is now exposed and she's continuing to fire. The last shot, we know this because the, the medical examiner had told us that he was alive until he sustained this last shot. This last shot was in his head and it was in the left side of his forehead just above the hairline. An interesting note to this shot, there was stippling surrounding this bullet hole, this bullet entry wound, which means she was close. Why, why is this important to us? Well, we take that firearm and it gets tested now. The firearms examiners will take it into a lab and they will fire it. They will test it for operability. Um, make sure there's no malfunction so nobody can say, well, the gun malfunctioned and that's why this all happened. And then what they'll do is they'll do what's called muzzle-to-target distance tests. They take that gun with that ammo, ammunition, and they will fire it into test standards. Generally what they are is square pieces of material, like kind of a white cotton t-shirt material sometimes is what they use. And they can use them as controls. It was done in a controlled environment from a controlled known distance from muzzle-to-target, and we can then recreate distance patterns. We can give um, a threshold of where the muzzle was from the target based on the injury patterns that were left on the victim or the gunshot residue patterns that were left on the shirt. We can recreate them and say, look, this is where the muzzle was. And that's one of the reasons why we're able to say that Shana Hubers shot from across the table first. We don't believe there was a struggle because nothing on the table was disturbed. We were able to see that Ryan Poston went face down onto the table and bled heavily onto that table. We're then able with confidence to say she went around the table. She also gave us that bit of information later on. She, she, she corroborated what we were thinking. And she fired two more rounds from a different location. She closed the distance. He then fell. She then closed the distance again. And you might say, well, she really didn't have to walk very far. It doesn't matter. She kneeled down and put the muzzle down to be able to hit him in the chest, which, which was only partially exposed, leaving gunshot residues and an, an additional wound track. And her last shot was close to the head. Now, when they did the test, they said two and a half to three feet, muzzle to target. That's not that far. And she's leaving stippling patterns 
on his back, and on his forehead. So what we were able to determine, and this is how you have to break it down, the individual being shot, the individual receiving this gunfire is Ryan Poston. The individual doing the shooting, which means the individual in control, in total control of the firearm, is Shane Hubers. There are six shots fired. There are six hits. She is in total control of this firearm. And in the course of those six shots, we have determined that she is moving and closing the distance to her target as she repeatedly fires the weapon. That's very significant. Now, six shots fired, six hits. Let's talk about that for a minute. Many people that might listen to this watch a lot of TV. I can't tell you how many times we've heard people, what I think are normally educated, intelligent people will say, I don't understand why the police had to shoot him. Why couldn't they shoot him in the hand or the knee or the shoulder? I've said this before on this, on this show. It's a question that stems from not understanding certain things. I don't want to say you're stupid because you're not. It's, it's a legit question if you don't fire guns and you don't understand how difficult that actually is. So I'm going to give you some statistics. Police-involved shootings. Hit rates, intense confrontation moments, people shooting back and forth to each other, are somewhere between 17 and 26%, which is fairly accurate. Some agents will say, well, it's more like 35%. There's some agents out there go, no, ours are like 90%. Yeah, that's bullshit. You can't count the one shot incident. That's not what we're necessarily talking about. You know, a guy's two feet away, somebody swings a bat and they shot him. Okay. That's 100% it's one. I'm talking about shots. I'm talking about incidents where multiple shots are fired and there's, a, there's a, a sustained gunfire for several seconds or something like that. That's why you see, well, the police shot 30 times and they hit him four or something like that. I'm not saying this is okay. I'm just saying it is what it is. There's reasons for this, which we are going to get into in future episodes deep. But a lot of it is they're not getting the opportunity to shoot enough. Um, the other thing is that people understand, because there's a lot of hobby shooters that go, bah, dude, I do better than that all the time at the range. Yeah, well, you're shooting at a piece of paper. The piece of paper's not shooting back at you. I can tell you that when somebody's shooting back at you, it changes everything. And I mean it changes it big time. Big, big, big time. The other thing you have to remember is police are usually shooting reactionary. They're not on the offensive. Police then don't shoot people offensively. They shoot it to stop a threat. I know there's a lot of people out there go, oh, we need police reform. We got this. They just shoot people. No, they don't, actually. I'm, this is what I do for I'm telling you, they don't. So a lot of what you hear in the media is bullshit, too. But when we get to a shooting and we have six shots fired and we have six hits, I take note of that. And I say, why? Why? First of all, what is the proficiency level of the shooter? And that, that's a big deal. Some of you might say, well, police have a lot of proficiency. Not all of them. I'm not going to lie to you. There's some people on the range that we shoot and qualify with. You look and they go, well, why does he have a gun? It's the truth. When you get into your tier one military units, your really high speed people, yeah, their, their hit rates are high but they're shooting hundreds of thousands of rounds. And we'll talk about that in another episode, but it's really a different game. It's also a different set of rules, rules of engagement. A lot of times they are not shooting in defense. They are on the offense. So there's a multitude of reasons why. But I have a woman here, Shani Hubers, who's six for six in a condo. Why does that happen? How does that happen? Is she a stud shooter? I mean, is she that proficient? I submit to you, no. There's another reason. The other reason is she's not looking at a threat. There is not that anxiety level of a threat to her life in front of her, which is one of the key components of people missing shots. The other part is he's static. You ever heard the term, it's hard to hit a moving target? Well, that's true. It's definitely harder to hit a moving target than it is to hit a stationary target. Ryan Poston is a stationary target for every volley of shots that she lets off. And if you think about 
what happened there. It's one, right, to the head, then two to the right side of the back shoulder, okay? Then two more, armpit, center chest, and then the final one is the head. So it's one, two, two, one. Kind of in that sequence. And she's able to do this because she has no fear of getting hurt. She's in total control of the weapon. And she's moving freely. And she's lining up her shots. And she's firing at her speed, at her discretion. And that, in a shooting, is a massive piece of information. Massive piece of information. Now, there were a few things in here that became an issue. One was the ejected cartridge casing. I, told, I explained to you about how the semi-automatic work. It ejects the empties, the spent cartridge casings. Well, where they are, there's a lot of people that always want to talk about uh, ejection pattern analysis. And what they mean is, well, where did they land? Because it means something. Well, I'm here to tell you, it can mean something, depending on what it landed on or where it landed. But when a, when a fired cartridge casing comes out of a weapon after it's been ejected, it is traveling end over end. And it's traveling pretty quickly. Spinning. It really all depends on what it hits on its way down to its final rest. If it lands in the grass, it may be caught and just stay right there. If it landed in clutter on the table, it may be caught and stay right there. But if it hits something and bounces, you don't know what it's going to direction it's going to go. One of the analogies I use when I talk in court is, uh, think of a football player. Think of a football game, right? American football. Third down or fourth down, and you punt. And the ball is up in the air, and the guy's waiting for it to come down, and everybody's running down that field, right? It's, if the guy doesn't catch it on the fly, the punt returner doesn't catch the ball on the fly, and he bobbles it or he misses it or he lets it hit the ground, it's like the most exciting three seconds in football because it's about to be a massive, violent encounter. I have all these guys running down the field at the top speed, right? They're all 200-something pounds, ready to take somebody's head off. The ball hits the ground. Which way does it go? I don't know. We're going to find out when it hits the ground because it's traveling end over end or it might be spiraling or whatever it might be, but it's oblong. Well, so is a bullet casing oblong. So it all depends on what it hits, how it hits, and the direction that it bounces that will ultimately determine its final resting position. My point is this. You could have six rounds fired and bullets, shell casings could be stattered in different, different places. In this case, we also have a moving shooter. So our shooter moving has something to do with the changing of the ejection. They're being ejected from different locations. So to put any stock in an ejection pattern in this case would be foolish. It's not, it's not going to work for you. They, where they end up, there's too many objects in the room, and she's a moving shooter. So the probative value of the final resting position of the ejected cartridge casings is not valuable here. And we have to dismiss that. Because what it did was it started to suggest that maybe she was on a different side of the table when she shot. Well, it's not that case. Look at the wound tracks. Look at where the bullet impacts and how it works, uh, how they travel through the body. So the blood stain evidence became very important here as well. The, the pooling blood under him on the table was important. The pooling blood under him on the floor, on the carpeted floor, was not that important. When you have a large volume of blood on a surface, and that surface might be vertical, it's going to drip. It's going to flow. So the flow patterns on Ryan Poston's body told us something about his position. And they became important, very important. The lack of blood in certain areas told us other things about his body position. As I go through these things, I want you to think back to what we said in the first episode when we talked about this. How locating the evidence, documenting the evidence, and interpreting the evidence becomes very important. That's why it's so critical to keep everybody out of there. Because if somebody had went in and rolled his body, You've now taken away the body position. 
for us to look at and say, this is important or this is not important. That's pretty critical. And the more things get moved, if anybody started moving the things off the table, you know, if somebody came and said, hey, let's clear the table. We can set up here and work. No, 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 no. That debris, that clutter on that table became an important piece to this case because it kind of blew up her story about how we had this violent struggle over the top of the table. That didn't happen. There's no way it happened. His clothing, had they, had they moved him around and changed his clothing? Blood in that, at that early, you know, that close to the murder, time of murder, is still in a liquid form. It hasn't dried up yet. The clothing absorbs it. You would have completely changed the pattern of the blood on his clothing. And it would have precluded us from making any determinations about the blood stain evidence on him. Certain things that don't get changed are the, that stippling pattern on the head, which is, which is critical. But all of these other things become very important factors, and they need to remain in place and be documented so you could make some sort of, uh, come to an opinion, some sort of analysis and ultimately opinion. I'm going to read a little bit from the shooting reconstruction report, if you don't mind. Um, and cer certain things that we, we talk about, you know, discussions and conclusions with respect to him. Um, we mentioned the GSR and everything, but we break it down. We like to break it down. So Ryan Poston's position at the onset of the gunfire. While Ryan Poston was in a seated or nearly seated position at the table, it's logical to conclude he sustained the tangential gunshot wound to the right side of his head. As a result of this incapacitating gunshot, his head fell forward onto the surface of the table. Once you see the evidence, you look at the photos and you see the blood on the table, it becomes very obvious that that's what happened. Uh, his glasses being in a position with the temple tips pointing straight up in the air. Now, after that first gunshot, the sequence of the remaining two, the ones in his back, right side, we can't tell which one of those came first. We just can't. But we can tell they came from the same location pretty obvious. Body received them from the same side. They, the, the wound tracks were in the same direction. That's how we kind of say how that, that was next. That's also on the floor. That part of it wasn't exposed. So we couldn't, though he could not have sustained those two gunshots on the right side of his back while he was on the floor because that part of his body was up against the wall. Um, the bloodstain evidence on the chair and everything further uh, suggests blood shedding even while the victim was in a seated or partially seated position. So he's bleeding downward, right? Massive amounts of blood, gravity has an effect on flow pattern. So the fact that there's blood on the seat, on the surface of the seat, and on his lap, in his clothing, are indicative of something above that bleeding because there was no wounds down there. And that would have been the head because everything else is on his backside. Those are penetrating gunshots. They didn't exit out the front. So he takes the gunshot to the head, it bleeds down. So those are the types of things that allow us to say he's in this position when he receives this injury. Um, there's no bloodstain evidence at that point to, to suggest or support that the first three gunshots to the right side of his head or the area in the armpit of the back were inflicted with the body on the floor. And that's very important too. Then we move over and we talk about Ryan Poston's position at the conclusion of the gunfire. The final three gunshots sustained by Mr. Post and were inflicted while he was in a position adjacent to the wall while on his, partially on his right side. And in that position, he received a gunshot wound to the left armpit, right side of his head, and the center of his chest. The shooter was in a position to his left and was positioned as, as Mr. Poston was positioned on the floor. It's very important to look at the directionality of those shots because it puts... We can back extrapolate those wound tracks out into space. Remember, he's a static object at that point. He's not moving around. He's there on the floor. Bring those wound tracks back out, and it tells us right where Miss Hubers was standing, right there in front of him, down low and close. I'm going to tell you right now, and this is not something we say in court, but I'm going to, I can say it here. She shot him five times. That shot in the head, she executed him. She finished him. He was still alive, 
medical examiner confirmed that until that shot occurred, there was still life in his body. She executed him. Final gunshot, close range. She moved in. Stippling shows us. Gunshot right to the head. Um, and that, that's, that's a very powerful piece of information to deliver to a jury. The swipe pattern on the wall supports, and in the blood, supports that he was shot in the armpit and, the, and came down and slid along the wall as he made his way to the floor. This young man was seated at that table, got shot in the face, never got a chance to move anywhere else. She, she controlled this entire incident. Now, the presence of stippling on four of the six gunshots is evidence that four uh, were intermediate, what we call intermediate in distance in nature, and that the test of the firearm told us that the distance being greater than contact, meaning the muzzle wasn't pressed to his skin, but not greater than two and a half to three feet. So she's close, very close. Now, a couple of the other points. The evidence is supportive of the movement by Poston after gunfire erupts um, to be the result of his body's response to the gunshots and or gravity. He only went to the floor. So you might say, what happened to Ryan Poston after he started getting shot? Well, he only went to the floor. And that's either a result of being pummeled by bullets or gravity itself, just not being able to hold himself up. The presence of the bloodstain evidence taken together with the varying wound tracks on Mr. Poston's body suggests a changing location of the injuries is due to the controlled movement of Miss Hubers, the shooter in relationship to Poston, rather than Poston's movement in relationship to her. So it's very important as a witness, we know this through the investigation, we have to get the point home to the jury, like, look, he's not moving, she's moving, she's circling her target and repeatedly firing at him. It's not like he's, he's took off, he took off running across the room and she fired at random directions and he presented different parts of his body. This is her circling the prey. That's what's happening here. Once the shooting is initiated by Shayna Hubers. That's important. There is no evidence to suggest Ryan Poston was in any other location other than behind the table and in the above two described locations, meaning in the chair and on the floor. Once it starts by her, he's nowhere else but in that chair and on the floor where he died. From the first shot fired, Shayna Hubers delivered incapacitating gunfire, allowing her the opportunity to re-engage and deliver additional shots. Once the decision to initiate the gunfire was made by Shana Hubers, this engagement and subsequent gunfire was under the total control of Ms. Hubers, and at no time did it appear she was on the defensive. Those are the messages you have to deliver to the jury. Okay? There was a lot of evidence collected here. Guns, ejected cartridge casings, projectile fragments, things off the table. There's another whole side to this investigation where the, where the homicide investigators have to, you know, download phone data. I want to know about communications between the two and things of that nature. What I just went through was a pretty quick version of the analysis of a shooting scene. I, I assure you they're not that quick. I gave you, I don't want to say a cliff note version, but kind of a condensed version. The wound tracks and the, the locations on the body where they're hit are very telling. The, re the point I really want to drive home is how critical it is to maintain the integrity of the scene because that's what allows you to get all this information. If you don't, it's lost. And once it's lost, there's no getting it back. Um, when you hear that a crime scene unit is in a place for 7, 8, 12 hours, there's a reason why. There's a lot going on, and they have to get it. Um, I hope you understand this. We're going to revisit it a little bit again and talk a little bit more about the the uh, the wounds and the, and the blood and, and whatnot when we talk about our next phase of this. The next phase of this is preparing for trial and going to trial. She's now charged with the murder of Ryan Poston. That's great. We all know it. We're there, or you know, Highland Heights Police Department is there. We get kind of we're looking at things. We know this. We're investigating things. We're we're, we're Experts analyzing this, we get it. We believe this. That doesn't mean anything. I have to make the jury believe it. The police officers that were at the scene have to make the jury believe it. The, the Commonwealth Attorney of Kentucky 
has to make the jury believe this. So the next phase of this is going to be the presentation. We'll give you some more background about the tumultuous relationship and some of the things that were said at the trial. So I hope this gives you a little clearer picture. We're going to move forward with it again. We'll do another episode uh, talking about the next phase of this case. We'll talk about some of her statements, some of the statement analysis of what she said and why she, how she said it and when she said it. I think you're going to find it interesting. Some of the things she blurted out in court. Um, we'll talk about her defense and what they wanted to talk about. We'll talk about um, her time in jail. Um, when we get to the initial trial, she was found guilty. We're going to tell you that right off the bat. And her guilty verdict was thrown out, and she was tried a second time. And we'll get into why that happened. And what we really want you to kind of get out of all that is uh, how difficult it is for a prosecuting attorney, a Commonwealth attorney, to present a murder case. It's not an easy thing to do. There are so many moving parts, and they become the conductor of the orchestra that has to go before the jury. And they have to make legal decisions. They have to be careful of what they say and how they say it and what goes on. And same thing, the judges have to charge a jury and, and they have to be careful as well. So in our next episode, we're going to get into that whole courtroom prep and trial, uh, multiple trials here of Shana Huber's for the murder of Ryan Poston. Thanks for listening and we'll talk soon.